Our second text comes from the Gospel of John, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. Continue to listen to God's Word to you. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a joy and privilege it is to to be here. Richard, thank you for that uh, introduction. I really appreciate it because it sort of sets me up. I, I thought about beginning with a story about the national championship game, but then I remembered I was in the state of North Carolina. And being from the city of Philadelphia, well, that's where Villanova is, in case you didn't know. I guess I began with it anyway. Well, I am a native Philadelphian, now living in the wonderful city of Atlanta. And while Atlanta increasingly feels more and more like home, my allegiance and my commitment to Philadelphia professional sports teams has not diminished. Now, this is not so much of a problem in Atlanta with professional football and basketball. The Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta Hawks are not natural rivals with their counterparts in the city of brotherly love. But when it comes to professional baseball, there is a problem. Because the Philadelphia Phillies and the Atlanta Braves, even though they are bottom dwellers in the National League East this summer, they do have a serious division rivalry. Well, two Labor Days ago, when we had only been in Atlanta for about a month, the church family had given us tickets for an afternoon game on Labor Day to see the Phillies play the Braves at Turner Field. And the Phillies actually did something that only 10 other teams in the past 100 years of baseball history had done. They pitched a combined no-hitter and won the game, shut out the Braves. In other words, none of the four pitchers pitching for Philadelphia that day gave up a hit in the entire game. The next day, I was the guest at a lunch hosted by a husband and wife that were contemplating church membership at First Atlanta. Early on in the conversation, the gentleman asked, so are you going to change your professional allegiances now that you live in Atlanta? I did not have to wait for that answer. I said, the Falcons and Hawks are okay, but the Braves? The stinking Braves? 
No way. I'm never going to root for that baseball team. Did I mention that my host was an avid Braves fan? I then went on to brag and crow about how the Phillies had no-hit the Braves the day before and how wonderful it was to be there in person. Obviously, in that moment, I was not a very good guest as I mocked my host's team. Well, as the lunch concluded, and as we were heading out of the restaurant, we walked by two men that my host greeted by name. He said, hey, John, hey, Frank, how are you? They returned the greeting, and they began to talk just for a few brief moments and in small, informal ways. And I was just standing there over my guest's shoulder, thinking that it was odd, thinking that any moment he would introduce me, but, but he didn't. He just sort of talked his way out, and we started to, to move on. I thought this was incredibly odd. My host is a southern gentleman. I thought for sure he'd want to introduce his would-be pastor to his friends, became clear as we rounded the corner, now out of sight from the two men, as to why he did what he did. He said, Tony, I would have introduced you to those two gentlemen, but I was the president and the general manager of the Atlanta Braves, (laughs) and I was afraid of what you might say to them. That was fair. As I said, uh, I was a bad guest at that lunch. I've since apologized to my host for my behavior. Simple etiquette required much more humility and a much more measured approach when talking about one's sports allegiances. Good guests don't brag. Good guests don't gloat, especially at the expense of their host's interest. My assumption is that all of us have witnessed at some point or have known In our time, a misbehaved or meddling or rude or obnoxious guest. I have friends in Atlanta whose home was on a neighborhood house tour. As people were making their way throughout their neighborhood, they would come to their home. They'd look at the architecture. They'd come inside and see the design and then be on their way. One of the the folks who owned the home went down into the basement to get something, and there were two people, a couple, on the tour in their wine cellar, opening bottles of wine and enjoying themselves as everyone else was taking the tour. Those folk were bad guests. Or how about this true wedding story from one of my pastoral mentors, the Irish groom, you know where this is going, the Irish groom is marrying an American, the wedding's taking place stateside. The groom invites his childhood mates from Ireland to fly over and to be part of the celebration. Arriving in the early afternoon on the day before the rehearsal, the friends insist that the groom parties into the night. They insist that he parties into the morning. They insist that he parties into the mid-morning. Finally, they go to bed the day of the rehearsal around lunchtime. They sleep through the rehearsal, they sleep through the rehearsal dinner, and a reservoir of forgiveness from the bride and her father were desperately required in order for that wedding to carry on as planned, which it did. Those Irish friends, they were bad guests. While we're on the topic of wine and weddings, and having just read John 2, 1 through 11, 
kind of think it might be appropriate to put Mary, the mother of Jesus, into this category. She's sort of behaving like a bad guest in this scene. Upon discovering that the party has run out of wine, Mary takes it upon herself to do something about it. But remember, Mary is just a guest. She's just a guest. Etiquette would require her to stay out of it, not to meddle, and to leave the business of the party planning in the hands of the host. It's not her job to worry about the wine. Intervention, in fact, could potentially embarrass the host, exposing his lack of preparation or maybe his stinginess in not purchasing enough wine to last the length of the party. Still, Mary gets involved. She gets involved. And her plan to remedy the wine shortage is to get Jesus involved. So Mary says, Jesus, son, they have no wine. I imagine Jesus on the dance floor. Same woman. This is not a curt way to respond. It's like saying, Ma, that's not our concern. It's not our job to worry about the wine. What concern of it is it rather to you and to me? So I think Jesus, right, he, he understands the etiquette. They're guests. It's not their role. It's not their responsibility. Still, Mary insists to the servants, do whatever he says. And without explanation in the text as to why, Jesus does get involved. The servants heed Mary's instructions and do exactly what Jesus asks them to do, and a miracle occurs. Water is turned into wine. But this is no ordinary wine, right? And this isn't two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's. This is like a 1961 St. Julian Bordeaux of the finest vintage, of the finest quality. The wine steward is amazed by it. A better vintage is now served than what was served at the outset of the party. And the steward finds the groom, the host, and says, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. And in this line... In this exchange, it's just one of the many meaningful aspects of this text. And it comes to life for us. For the ministry that Jesus inaugurates is a ministry that declares better things are to come. The ministry that Jesus inaugurates declares better things are to come. Jesus has the power to bring something to do something new. He has the power to bring something better than the good that has come before. But in order for that to happen in Cana, in order for that to happen at that wedding feast, he's going to have to move from playing the role of guest to the role of host. Do you follow me? In order for better things to come, He's going to have to move from the role of guest to the role of host. It was the host's job to get the wine. And Jesus steps in and does that job. He moves from being a guest to being a host. And new wine and better wine comes. He'll have to come off the dance floor. 
He'll have to be put in charge. He'll have to go to the back room. The servants will have to listen to him. And space will have to be afforded to, to him so that he might work the miracle that needs to be worked. If better things are to come, he's going to have to move from being a guest to being the host. I think faithful and wise Mary knew this. I think she knew this. I think she knew what would happen if Jesus was put in charge. She knew that not only would the wine flow again, but that better things would come. Better things will come when Jesus is the host. Mary, I think, in some way knew that. And the question that meets us this morning, church, is do we? Do we know that? In our own lives, in our own churches, that when Jesus becomes the host, better things are to come. There's a member at First Atlanta. Her name is Keenan. She's in her mid-20s. She's an entrepreneur. She writes a food blog. She has a cooking class company, a, a hospitality company where she teaches people party planning. I recently asked her, what makes for a good host at, her dinner, at a dinner party? I said, there's obvious things I know, right? Where, where you want to create a space that's welcoming and hospitable. And you want to have, if you're having a dinner party, you want to have enough food for everyone and more to spare if people want to go back for, for seconds. But, but what other qualities do you try to instill in the folks that you're, that you're teaching, who take your classes, who, who want to be really good and faithful hosts? She said, here's one for you that not many people think about. She said, a good host, a really good host, models the expected speech and the behavior they desire from the guests that attend party. I thought that was pretty good, right? I mean, think about that. Guests take their cue from the host, not only for the logistical concerns of a dinner party, not only what you're going to wear or what time you need to show up, but in speech and behavior, the ways in which the host interacts and the topics that the host chooses to put before the group at the dinner party, the behavior that the host embodies Will, will be observed, will be listened to by the guests, and a good guest will take their cue from the host. Right? If, for example, by the end of the night, the host is swinging from the chandelier, guests are implicitly given permission to do the same. And they wind up, they may wind up even doing so. So here's the parallel. If Jesus is the host of the church... And Christians make that confession. If Jesus is the host of our lives, and Christians make that confession. If Jesus is the host of the reign of God that he called the kingdom of God, then we ought to take our cue from him for both our speech and our behavior. Truth be told, living as if Jesus is the host is far more difficult than living with him as one of our guests, right? When Jesus is a guest in your life, you can arrange his seat at the table as close or as far away as you want. We can dictate the direction of the conversation. We can choose the topics 
according to our desires, not his. When Jesus is the guest, we can tell him when and, and where to show up. How about, how about in Montreux, 1030, Anderson Auditorium, can you be there? And then we tell him when it's time to go home, when the party's over. We don't need his company anymore. Hey, Jesus, it's Monday morning, time to go. I've got work, I've got school, I've got my priorities, I've got my passions, I've got my routine, I've got my habits that work for me. I have to live my life. But when Jesus is the host, he tells you where to sit. When Jesus is the host, he dictates the conversation. He models a behavior marked by enemy love and radical hospitality and just generosity, and the healing of the brokenhearted, and forgiveness and fidelity for all and to all. If Jesus is the host, we let his conversations shape our conversations. If Jesus is the host, we let his behavior shape our behavior. And it's only then, says John 2, it's only then we will experience new wine. It's only then when we will experience better things to come. And Lord knows, church, Lord knows we need better things to come. Like the prophet Isaiah who longs for the restoration of Zion and the day of vindication of the Lord, we also long for a new day. We long for a new party. We long for new wine. Friends, people are longing for better things than the violence and the political discourse and the fragmentation and the division and the materialism and the fear that is all around us. The challenge for many, including me, is that my life and our lives and our churches do not look different from that world. Our parties that we throw, feature the same themes, the same conversations, and the same behavior. As a seminary president, David Lowe says it this way, the world tells us that we are what we own. We are what we own. Image is everything. There is not enough, and we should be very, very afraid. I wonder this morning how many of us tell that same story in our churches, or tell that same story to ourselves over and over and over again. Friends, that has to change. That story has to change. It has to. And the only way it will change is when we recognize that our host tells a different one. That he throws a different party than the world is throwing. A party where our value is measured by God's mercy and love. A party where the image that God values is a humble and contrite and servant's heart. A party where there is more than enough for everybody. A party where perfect love casts out all fear. Jesus sets a table for us this morning. It is His table. It belongs to Him. He is the host. And He invites us to join Him 
at this table. And at this table, we hear and we see the speech and the behavior of our host. It's marked by sacrificial love. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It's marked by acceptance. Even the betrayer sits at this table. Even those who would deny him sit at this table. And there is enough bread and enough cup to go around. When Jesus, friends, is the host, all are welcome. There is more than enough. And there is no reason to be afraid. May we affirm Jesus' rightful place as host in our lives, in our churches, and in the world. And may we model our speech and our behavior after His for the sake of His gospel and for the sake of His world. May it be so. And all of God's people say, Amen.